welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Please send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live during the show using hashtag Disrupt TV. We will do our best to answer the questions live and then certainly after the show. It's my privilege to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He is the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to multiple media outlets, including ZDNet, and in my humble opinion, one of the best follows on Twitter when it comes to technology, market trends, emerging tech, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to uh, Disrupt TV. Hey, everybody. Happy Friday, and uh, welcome to my co-host as well, Bala Afshar. Uh, he is one of the top CIO, CMO followers on Twitter. I think number one on every single list I've seen so far this year and the past five years. So great follow. And of course, um, regular contributor before to Huffington Post, now to ZDNet, and more importantly, uh, one author himself. And of course, a very, very awesome dude to hang out with on a Friday like today. So happy Friday. Who do we have? We've got some great topics this week. We have amazing guests, amazing futurist technologists, thought leaders, and we're going to kick off the show with Bala Rajaraman, fellow and VP of cloud at IBM. Bala is currently CTO of client technical engagement at IBM's hybrid cloud division. His current responsibilities include the strategy, architecture, and design of cloud platforms and solutions. In the past, Bala has been involved in the strategy, architecture, design of several products for cloud computing, service operations management, and DevOps. Follows areas of uh, professional interest in cloud computing, automation, networking, and system performance. He holds over 25 patents in these areas. <laughs> I was happy last year when I got a patent. He has 25. <laughs> He's a great follow on Twitter at B-A-L-A underscore R-A-J-A-R-A-M-A-N. Welcome, Bala, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, guys. You guys are wonderful. Hey, happy Friday. We've got an IBM fellow. That's like the highest level of like thought leadership, research. You've been there 25 years. Um, you're calling live from RTP. We're talking about the cloud, right? And, and, and it's really interesting how the cloud is all hot again, right? I mean, we've been talking about the cloud for 15 years, right? right. And people are starting to get it. And this, you know, we see these adoption trends. They take a while to get there. Um, but when we think about enterprise cloud adoption, um, what's happening? What's the ongoing challenges? We've got more people realizing that they've got to be in the cloud. They've got to make the shift. What are you seeing on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great question because the cloud is a given. I mean, I think we've played around with it. I think more and more we look at it, it's got the right business value, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some interesting challenges. I think when you look at an enterprise, it's a little bit different because a lot of their value is in what they have the systems they have, the processes they have, the data that they have. And so the biggest challenge I think is that we've gone through about 20% of taking advantage of cloud. There's still a huge opportunity, like 80% of applications that have the potential to take advantage of cloud. And so what the struggle, the, the basic struggle is, is how do you actually do it in a sustainable way, in a comprehensive way, and in a scalable way? 
And enterprises have those fundamental challenges, which is if you look at them one by one, scalable meaning they have to look at multiple countries, multiple geographies, multiple diversities of teams with different legacies. When you look at it as comprehensive, and I think in particular, this is important, is because when you look at the actual value of cloud, it's around delivering a business outcome which means you have to look at it all the way from Genesis. How do you implement new procedures and DevOps and so on and so forth, all the way to get it into production and maintain it in production, provide the right qualities of service. So that comprehensive nature is something that enterprises have to, have to tackle. And scale obviously is a problem and sustainability is how do you actually not retreat back to the stuff that you know well for the last 40 years and actually take the leap into some of these newer models and the, the, the perceived value of those. So I think those, these are the big challenges that we see. So t in, in, in terms of taking a leap or recognizing the velocity of transformation, speed and direction, um, you have CIOs that think about private cloud, public cloud, hybrid strategy. Can you just educate our audience about the differences and what trends and relevancy you see in terms of different deployments of the cloud? No, that's a great question. So when I when I when I look at cloud, I don't immediately jump into the distinction between public, private, multi, etc. Again, come back from a perspective of what are you trying to accomplish and how do you get there? And now given that cloud is a fundamental value and you have a large estate, whether it be processes or data, how do you actually go through the journey? How do you actually progress from where you are to where you want to be? And what that leads us to is that you, you certainly build new applications and you, you interact with the users in different ways, you use social media, and you're building a whole bunch of components to support that. But you also have to pull in some of your existing assets, your knowledge of our customers, your business processes, uh, security models, and so on and so forth. And that integration really leads to the definition of hybrid, which is it's not the end point, we can debate it ad nauseum, but you land up with a situation where you have some of these newer initiatives whose success is gonna be dependent on your existing assets, your existing people, your existing technology. When you bridge those two worlds, you land up with hybrid. And so there's opportunity from a cloud perspective to address both of those domains. How do you build new applications? How do you implement DevOps processes and SREs? sorry, functions for management, but how do you integrate it back with what you have? How do you modernize your core systems? And that gives you the breadth, the amplitude that you're dealing with in terms of getting true benefits out of the cloud. And that is the fundamentally the hybrid challenge. And what, what we look at from IBM's perspective is how do you get the entire end-to-end -end set of capabilities? How do you build new applications? How do you modernize your existing applications, especially around your core systems? And how do you integrate these two worlds? And how do you have a seamless journey from a technology perspective, from a process perspective, from an evolution perspective, and from a sustainability perspective to address those? So I think that your, your question was very insightful in the sense that it's not the destination that we necessarily have to worry about it. How do you get there? And what are the, what are the technology implications of getting there? You know, Bob raises some great points, right? So when you think about this, you've been talking about outcomes, right? We're looking at the cloud and some outcomes that are there. What are some things that people couldn't have done before the cloud occurred in terms of business outcomes to achieve, um, things that were so hard to do um, in their existing environments? I, I think fundamentally, I mean, I think cloud has a bunch of intrinsic technical characteristics, whether you call it elasticity or whatever. But to me, maybe I'm 
being a little bit iconoclastic about it. But to me, the value is around integration and the ability to get a collection of things that work together. That fundamentally lets you build quickly, experiment quickly. And when you throw in integration, being able to leverage your existing systems to actually deliver business outcomes, not do experiments. And I think what this has allowed us to do is really take enterprise strengths and their reach into the markets and their customers and expand it in a much more global way, address different interaction models, look at disruptions that are happening and be able to go from a position of strength rather than a position of weakness. So and I think both. Oh, sorry. So you see the centralization aspect of it, providing um, ability to actually get better insights, better visibility, um, but it also supports a decentralization aspect as well. So. Absolutely. I think when you look at it from a consumption model perspective, I think, and, and that's an exciting part, is that there's no one place where everything is available. The rates of innovation are different and different from different providers, whether you look at IBM or AWS or Google. I think there's innovation happening in all of these areas. How do you take advantage of all of those? How do you integrate them together? I think for the most part, the landscape now is fractured. I mean, you've got islands of capability that, but I think the next generation, and this is where the real value comes in, is how do you start pulling them together? How do they work? The multi-cloud landscape is becoming more and more important. And that's not from a perspective of where you get the infrastructure from. It's where you get the services from. Where is the data? Where is the reach to the customers? What platforms do you engage with? And right. I think that's where the, the, the fun part of cloud really comes in. I looked at, uh the marketing tech stack of one of our customers recently, and they had uh, 41 different companies in their MarTech uh, mm -hmm. landscape, two thirds cloud SaaS providers, uh, um, capabilities in the cloud. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I'm a, I come to you as a CIO and I say, Bala, I just left the board meeting and my mandate is digital transformation and moving to a multi-cloud environment. What advice do you have for me? <laughs> Where do I start? How do I, and you started the conversation saying we're only 20% into really taking advantage of the technology, the cloud capabilities that are available. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, is that 80% limited because integration can be so hard? Or, or, or what are the challenges? Uh, yeah. I, I, from yeah. culture and talent and maybe process. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the, the, the challenge, and if, to go back to your first question of how would you talk to a, a, a CIO about it? The first thing is you have an incredible set of assets, whether it's data or processes that you have, you have today. What the fundamental challenge is, is how do you take that set of assets and integrate it into the new engagement models and new delivery models and new ecosystem participating in different marketplaces. And that's wherein you can start from an enterprise out perspective, leverage your strength and the strength that the ecosystem is bringing from a cloud perspective to be able to really address things like disruption as well as broadening your market. Now that said, you get to a set of challenges, which is now you're, you're basically defined by the speed at which you can address this market, right. which means that you can build new things quickly, that's great, but if your strength is what you have, then how do you bring all of those into this high velocity model, this high velocity culture? And that, that's where integration, structured integration, how do you bring together your existing data, your existing application, existing processes connected to these new environments becomes really interesting. And if you look at how we've built systems over the last 40 years, it's a tangled mess. Yeah. I mean, there's 
assumptions of performance. There's assumptions of security. There's ways in which people have been trained to manage these systems. All of that needs a degree of transformation. And I think that's where, when, when at least from a perspective of IBM, it's not about just having a platform. It's bringing together the skills from a DevOps perspective, new methods like garages and so on and so forth. How do you address security challenges? How do you address, how do you institutionalize best practices at scale? How do you bring in your existing states? How do you transform them in a progressive and de-risk model? Because if you had infinite money and everything could be transformed in a nanosecond, life would be different, yeah. but then you have to manage your risk, your investments, et cetera. So that spectrum of capabilities, and we, we, we have systems for AI, we have our cloud portfolio, we have our middleware and software portfolio, we have integration, we have our infrastructure business, we have our business services and transformation. How they all come together to address the spectrum of change and transformation that an enterprise has to go through is really the value that we bring to the table. And you're also and drinking your own champagne. I mean, IBM itself is transforming go-to-market and new business models and how, you know, uh, the ecosystem of employees and partners help customers, you know, change uh, their businesses. Absolutely. You have, to, you have to go through the school of hard knocks yeah. as an enterprise <laughs> to be able to, right. to, to provide a degree of, of confidence and advice in this. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right in the sense that we've, I, I would not say this was a, a, a path that was perfect and seamless yeah. and smooth. We have gone through all the challenges. But what's interesting is that all of these challenges have helped us inform how we can provide these capabilities back to our enterprise clients. You know, it's a great point there. And, and I think one of the things that one of our analysts spends a lot of time, you guys know Holger Mueller, he's been talking about enterprise acceleration, right? This fact that the technology is all there, right? For the first time in the history, the technology to enable things to happen is there, but the problem is internally, how do you, can, how do you work fast enough to get there? And one of those things that accelerates the process is open standards. And let's talk about how open standards is actually helping you guys accelerate business outcomes as well um, for clients. Uh, great question. I think it's open standards and open communities. I think when you, when, you, when, you, when you look at the landscape, it is all about how do you provide choice to the enterprise in engaging with different ecosystems, whether it is from an infrastructure level, so how do you look at multi-cloud, how, how do you integrate these aspects, and what are, the, what are the standards that you need to integrate around, whether it's around API management and things like Swagger, et cetera, et cetera, or interfaces around that, and how do you actually look at, openness is not only about having just open standards, how do you actually differentiate around them? How do you provide differentiated qualities of service? How do you differentiate from the core systemic capabilities you have, like for example, our power systems and how they are optimized for AI? It's open power, it's open AI, it's open platforms, but how you bring them together and how you expose them as services is what makes our cloud, for example, a differentiated cloud when you look at that particular dimension around things like AI. So standards are integral. We, have, we participate in the CNCF, we in Kubernetes, in OpenStack, yep. uh, in uh, AI standards, in Swagger. I think we, we've got probably one of the, the broadest yeah. spectrum of where we have, I mean, and it goes back all the way to Linux and Eclipse, if you, if you guys remember that. I mean, we've, yeah. we've, for the last 25 years, we've been, open standards has been our bread and butter and, and kind of how we sustain our own innovation. So I've had the privilege of working with um, IBM on blockchain related projects. Oh yeah. Some, some that have been 
fairly complex, super ambitious, but um, you know, we use this word a lot, so maybe it's lost its meaning over time, but in my opinion, game-changing projects, <laughs> uh, IoT-related projects in retail space, mixed reality with augmented and virtual reality. So um, in terms of leading-edge expertise, domain expertise on some uh, technologies that may not see large-scale adoption for years, um, uh, I, I find that... Uh, You've got lots of lots of stakeholders, not just the CIO, involved, rolling up their sleeve, deeply involved in making sure of this accelerated adoption. Can you think about some of your clients, and I don't know if you can specifically mention any, but what are some trends you're seeing in terms of uh, successful adoptions of cloud, enabling and working in, in concert with other emerging tech like AI, IoT, blockchain, and so on and so forth? I think that's that's. I mean, I think that's fundamental to the kind of engagements we are seeing these days. Which is, I mean, if you look at, say, for example, a traditional insurance company, and you look at things like how do you make processes more efficient, you very quickly land up with needing a set of machine learning and artificial intelligence standards. And in, you integrate with the community. Things like blockchain become important. When you look at different kinds of instrumentation, like connected cars related to insurance, you get into IoT. So these are not individual islands. It's how do you actually have a collection of services and you integrate them. And whether you look at MERS, which we have had plenty of press around in terms of how we are doing some blockchain engagement, and that, there are numerous. I mean, there are hundreds of these going on across all of these domains. Uh, yeah. What we have focused on is how do you actually, how do you actually jumpstart this innovation? And we have a set of practices in our global business services, our garages, that start with how do you define these products? How do you, how do you start implementing them at small scale? How do you understand the, the operational requirements so that you can actually trans, transition that into production? It's not about building the first MVP. Right. It is about how do you carry that forward so that it actually provides business outcomes. MVPs don't necessarily do that, especially when you, when you look at business functions. I mean, it's a little bit of a different um, oh, environment. Well, maybe, maybe we move from MVPs to MAEs, like, you know, min, minimum awesome experience. Right? <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like yep. that. It creates yeah, a, a shift thinking I, process. So. I agree. I, because the viability changes, right? I mean, the yeah, viable yeah. part of it is, is end-to-end because now you, got, you, you, you really have new processes in place. People's lives depend on it. That's right. But hey, I want to get back to some more interesting things about you, right? I mean, you've been in the space 25 years um, at IBM, you said. You've been in the space longer than that. Um, I mean, what what drives you? What what keeps you up at night? What makes it interesting for you, right? I mean, you're sitting in the middle of, you're in the nexus of all this research and the two kids. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's that's a tricky question. uh, But... I mean, I mean, what is interesting, and, and this, is, this is a statement of IBM's culture as well as my personal experience, and is that there's a breadth of opportunity. I mean, we do everything from quantum to mainframes to cloud to every dimension of it. I mean, we deal with the biggest satisfaction for me is seeing the transition of these technologies into things that make a difference to people, to enterprises as a vehicle of delivering these capabilities to users. And it's not one thing. You're not sitting and writing a piece of code for 25 years. It's like I've started with mainframes. And actually, just as a side note, I think that was one of the best decisions I ever made because it, it gave me a level of understanding of the criticality of what we do 
yeah. to the economy, to people, to the world at large, at the large. And the discipline of programming, the discipline of things like oh, yeah. high availability and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And bringing that forward, when you look at new technology, whether it's our web sphere and middleware portfolio, it's our databases, it's cloud, and mm-hmm. what kind of differentiation we build in, that's what keeps you awake at night, but that's also what makes you think every moment, whether you're in the shower or whatever else. And that's, <laughs> that's what keeps me coming back every day. Hey, Paula, you know, you, you know, I think mainframe equals time. Main, mainframe equals cloud. It's basically time frame. Yeah, it's a time sharing, right? So yep. on the mainframe, right? If you think about name value pairs, that's basically what we're talking about. NoSQL. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you think no. about, you know, VT100, that's our mobile. <laughs> that's the first time I've, I've seen, I've seen VT100 compared to a mobile, but, yeah, but it, I'll but take that analogy. It is. Take the analogy, right? And, and then think about what, what, what is the next big idea is going to be whatever we do to replace TCP IP. Right. It's, it's, it's because we've gone, we went to token ring, right? So what's the yep. token ring version of what we're trying to do in the cloud? And I think you've got your big idea. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think you, you're moving up the layers. And I, that's actually a, a really insightful question. Because I think the next challenge is how do you actually manage distribution at cloud scale? Yes. If you look, if you look at the evolution, we had mainframes, and then when you when you went to distributed, it was for it was islands, and then what the interesting challenge was: how do you actually combine them together into an enterprise delivery of capabilities? Right. Now the challenge is actually fascinating because now you have clouds, and you've got to bring them together. You have to bring them together from a programming model perspective, from a data perspective, from a management perspective from an exploitation of these services, from transactions that oh, run across clouds. And the whole notion of how we think about the last generation of middleware to the new generation of middleware, how we address the data challenges, the management challenges, the security challenges, edge computing challenges. Edge. I think the, that fabric, to your analogy, is the next token ring. It's gonna be driven by APIs. But APIs is, is kind of the, the, the base, it's the TCP IP of, of of right. this ecosystem, but what you build on top of it, that's all of the other layers. What is that special. virtual token ring that's gonna be there? We are here with Bala Rajaraman, fellow MVP of cloud at IBM, live from Research Triangle Park. And he is, you can follow him on Twitter at B-A-L-A underscore R-A-J-A-R-A-M-A-N. Thank you for being on Disrupt TV. Thank, Thank you guys, you. it was wonderful. We should, we should, we should sometime. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're cool. We have now hidden the pinnacle of what cloud is going and where, what's happening. Um, let's take it into the other direction, right, of what the implications are once we have the cloud and what happens in a world of AI. Who do we have here? What a privilege for us to have Honora Karsh, Chief Marketing Officer at IPSoft, as our next guest. Anurag is a globally acknowledged and widely respected operator, executive, and marketeer chosen as LinkedIn's number one, yes, number one thought leader in technology. He's the global chief marketing officer at IPSoft, the world leader in artificial intelligence with over 2,000 employees in 16 countries. IPSoft's human AI, Emilia, powers nearly one in five of the global 1,000. Anurag leads the company's worldwide marketing pre-sales efforts, spearheading growth of the company's groundbreaking AI platform. Prior to that, he was the co-founder of media behemoth, Ziff Davis, transforming the company from a 25 million privately held publisher to the world's largest publicly traded over $4 billion tech, health, gaming, entertainment, digital media company. 
pretty much he doesn't sleep. He just builds great things. Anurag <laughs> is the author of 500 plus published articles and seven best-selling books. He's an awesome follow on Twitter at A-N-U-R-A-G-H-A-R-S-H. Welcome, Anurag, to Disrupt TV. Thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, can't have a better way to send a spend a Friday. I, I had a hard time cutting your bio into a few minutes. You, you've done a lot, man. You've I've got a bunch of his books sitting in my house. Yeah, yeah. Huge. I, mean, I, 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 have, I, I need to do more after I read your bio. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for reading it. I wasn't expecting you to do that, but, but that's fine. Hey, but hey, look, let's talk about what's going on, man. You're in the midst of the AI revolution, right? You're sitting yeah. at one of, the, one of the forefront of companies that are actually thinking about how to bring the world of automation and AI and experience yeah. all into one area. Tell us a little bit about IPsoft um, and what you do for them. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, IPsoft is the world leader uh, in enterprise AI and it was founded by its CEO, Chayton Dubey, exactly 20 years ago. We just celebrated our 20th anniversary um, on the Intrepid. Uh, in New York City. And Chayton is a world-renowned expert, um, you know, in the world of autonomics and AI. Um, he's also the sharpest dresser I know in all of tech. I mean, that's one of the reasons we are dressed like this. Um, okay, so IPsoft uh, is the home of Amelia, like Vala said. You know, it's the industry's uh, most human uh, conversational AI, although we tend to think of her as a digital colleague that any company can hire. She has the ability to learn, you know, to interact, improve over time, making her, you know, we think the market's only AI that could fully understand, you know, users' needs, intentions, um, emotions. You know, you can train her to recognize words, phrases in over 100 languages. Um, and, you know, you know, as a result of that, she could deliver real-life business benefits, including you know, lower operational costs, um, customer satisfaction, which you know, goes to the roof, increased employee productivity. We also have this tool uh, that we launched a new product, uh, which is called OneDesk, where we've married the front end, which is cognitive to, and that's sort of very cutting edge now, to autonomic, which are these virtual engineers for like IT support and help desk management. It's a product called OneDesk, and it, it's essentially uh, delivers shared enterprise services by connecting front office conversations to back end systems, right? So um, pretty cool stuff. Uh, we serve, um, at least in banking, financial services, insurance, like one in three, um, and over 500 of the world's leading brands directly, including more than half of the world's you know, largest IT services providers. I lead the marketing function, but frankly, I know most of the time I find myself articulating the value proposition of boosting productivity with AI uh, to some of the world's you know, largest uh, companies. So this, this is interesting. Sorry. And I, I, so you're talking about augmenting humanity, not replacing here. That's what it sounds like. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, AI, you know, promises to be the most disruptive class of technologies, you know, during the next 10 years. And, and it's because of computational power, volume, velocity, you know, variety of data, as well as advances in DNNs, which is deep neural networks. And it's all based on DNNs. Um, very briefly for our viewers, so we don't get completely technically sidelined. Neural networks is the heart of AI, guys. It's uh, basically a set of algorithms modeled loosely after the human brain uh, that are designed to recognize patterns. You know, they interpret uh, you know sensory data through a kind of machine perception and then labeling or clustering like raw input, right? So these patterns 
uh, they recognize um, uh, like numerical patterns that contained in vectors into which all the real world data that's around us, you know, be it images, sound, text, you know, time series, that all has to be translated. So, so that's a neural network. Now with DNN, which is a deep neural network, which is an additional layer, which has multiple layers between these input and output layers. So it, it essentially finds the correct mathematical manipulation into, into this equation to turn the input into the output, whether it be linear or nonlinear. So that this network, what it does, it moves through the layers, calculating you know, the probability of each output. So for example, a DNL that's trained uh, to recognize dog breeds, right, will go over um, a given image and then it's gonna calculate like what's the probability that the dog in the image is a certain breed, right? So the user uh, can review the results and select which probabilities the network should display over a certain threshold and, and then re return that proposed label. So that's, you know, that's why it's called deep neural networks because it has a lot of layers. And so AI, all the world of AI, it really is based on deep, that's where, and then anyway, we can get into a lot of technology here, you know, feed forward neural, neural networks, you know, DNNs and what, whatnot. But fundamentally it all comes down to two forms. You have the quantitative world, which is quantitative techniques that could predict behavior from data. And then you have, you know, what I was just talking about, which are the neural network techniques that could classify these complex objects like images, video, speech, sound. And so what we're seeing, you know, organizations um, using AI technologies is to really harness this data to, to extract these new insights from the data uh, to, to, you know, automate the processes that are basically uneconomical applications for humans that is otherwise needed to perform a process, right? So, so, so we need to think about, you know, any industry with, with, with very large amounts of data, uh, so much that humans can't possibly analyze or understand it on their own, right? Mm -hmm. They can utilize AI, so it augments um, in, instead, of, instead of replacing it. And some industries like healthcare, for example, you know, they're, they're ripe for disruption. You know, AI applications will, 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 we're seeing it bring new levels of customer service, you know, quality of decision is going up, this scale, this operational efficiency to the processes that honestly formerly uh, was, was unattainable by just human labor. So it's not replacing humans, it's actually augmenting. It's helping them do their jobs better, right? It's, it's business value growth is a very typical S-curve, or I guess this way, the S-curve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, it's not the reverse. So, so when we think about the overall global value or like, you know, of augmenting humans, we have to consider, you know, the, the type of AI and the sources of where these business values are coming from. And, you know, we can talk about that if you want, but it's, you know, that, that's kind of where it's headed. No, no. Yeah, I mean, without exception, all of the technology analyst firms have positioned AI technologies, machine learning, deep learning, natural language processing, smart robotics, all these different categories of AI as, as the number one strategic uh, technology. And, and some even have said definitive technology in the 21st century. And uh, in terms of the VC interest, it's right now 2,772 AI startups that have fetched about 38 billion in funding just in the last few years. So yep. it's, this, it's more than hype, there's real investments and product enhancements and capabilities. And, you know, Ray and I talk about this notion of, uh, you know, it's uh, ambient computing scenario where yep. when you think about at home, when you're talking to a Siri or a Google Home or an Amazon Alexa, or you're just talking and answers are coming yep. to you. 
you saw the MIT student on 60 Minutes where he was just surfing the web with his mind and the vibrations in the back of his ear. He could translate the answers and, and essentially go from typing to, to swiping to voice and now mind is the UI. But when we talk about productivity, can you give us a notion of what that means in the business world? I'm a salesperson, I'm marketing, I'm customer service and support. Yep. Is, is AI taking us from descriptive, diagnostic, predictive, and to prescriptive use of data where you're telling me what I should do right now to be the most productive, very best marketeer I can be? Help us understand what productivity means when it's AI. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh Wow, that was that was a very that was that was a fantastic introduction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, um, you think about AI, right? You got to think about types of AI which are contributing to productivity, to boost it, to business value, and 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 the various ways to think about it. The way I think about it is in different buckets. So the first bucket is decision support and augmentation, right? Based on all of the research, you know, you guys have written in Constellation. I mean, essentially, it looks like almost a third of the entire global AI landscape, the business value in the coming you know, five to six years essentially is around that. It's decision support and augmentation, the kind of stuff that you're talking about um, you know, with augmenting human labor. And that will surpass everything else. And that's where DNNs are kicking in, which is enhancing AI systems that are built on traditional analytics. So we're not like reinventing and creating something new. What we're doing is we're taking these traditional analytic and statistical techniques like Monte Carlo simulations and whatnot, which are well-established for improving, you know, the quality of business decisions. And then we're applying deep neural networks uh, into them. And so what this is doing is it's allowing the organizations to perform a data mining pattern recognition across huge data sets, not otherwise readily quantified or classified, you know, creating tools that classify complex inputs that then feed traditional programming systems. And these systems can then produce insights, provide personalization, predict events, make probabilistic recommendations at a greater scale than traditional technologies, right? So the improved classification of complex inputs, this enables the algorithms, which are these traditional algorithms for decision support and augmentation to work directly with information that formerly required a human classifier. The other thing is, you know, agents, like virtual agents, like IPsoft's Amelia, right? Agents are using text um, um, or voice to communicate with users in natural language. You know, it's, it's made popular by Alexa and Cortana and Siri in the consumer space. And they're seemingly you know, ubiquitous in, in messaging apps. You know, they can reliably convert the spoken word into text. Right. I mean, capturing other app attributes from the user's speech, like frustration, for example, you have Google Empathy Labs, which is concentrating a lot on that. You know, now, cap yeah, I mean, capturing words and even intent are, 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 are really part of the problem. Today, customer service applications still require manual coding to correctly deal with the, uh, the, 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 you know, the far better extraction of intent that is possible with previous systems. So once implemented correctly, that's when the automated systems will deal with several steps of a customer interactions. And these systems will rapidly capture identifying information and the nature of the problem, as well as then examine the possible resolutions without engaging a human agent. So customers will find this experience efficient compared with the use of a human operator, and they will rapidly connect to a human who can then resolve the harder problems 
your first point, Ray, which is human AI augmenting human health, right? Harder problems, higher cognitive tasks. And these systems are driving consistent results in many domains. They can handle multiple languages, right? Although, you know, different cultures and languages would materially affect decision trees. Oh, yeah. I mean, Amelia is working in Japan. I was shocked, you know, we just had our <laughs> event and Japanese as a language is one of the toughest language for a human, forget about for an AI. That's right. And they call it Kotoha there. And there is another form of Amelia over there called Randy-san, which is pretty cool, Randy-san. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an agent over there. So virtual agents, right? They allow these corporate organizations uh, to reduce the labor costs, uh, you know, take over simple requests, tasks from call center. This is all productivity. Help desk, other, you know, service human agents while handling what? The more complex questions to their human counterparts. They can, they can, they can provide you know, uplift to the revenue, as in the case of robo-advisors you're seeing in financial services, oh, selling in call centers now, yeah. right? So, so they can help calendaring, scheduling, administrative tasks, and then they're freeing you know, these employees' time for higher value add you know, work and reducing the need for then you. Have, then you have decision automation, which is a completely different thing. That is not what I was talking about earlier. This is more about using AI uh, to, to, to automate tasks or optimize business processes, kind of stuff like that RPA does, but they're particularly yeah. helpful in tasks like translating voice tests and, and vice versa or processing, you know, handwritten forms or images and classifying other rich data content that's not readily accessible, uh, you know, to conventional systems. And, and, you know, they're, they're using statistical techniques that can automate, you know, routing, recommend next steps or instantiate other workflows, you know, that based on heuristics. Uh, that improve uh, over time with experience. So decision automation is an appropriate solution when there is ambiguity, as well as when, you know, big data sets, non-quantitative data sets are involved, which is yeah. where you know, a lot of noise is there. So that is, you know, strictly rule-based repetitive processes with structured data that could be solved by RPA, simple robotic process, but unstructured data, ambiguity are the staple of corporate world nowadays, right? Decision automation as it matures, that's where productivity is going to, AI is going to, and that's going to bring tremendous business value. And finally, we have these smart robots or these smart products, I would call it, not just robots. I mean, you know, AI is embedded in them. You have Pepper, um, Amelia to a certain extent, right? I mean, usually in the form of cloud systems. So we're, we're going to get Amelia in physical form. So, Sorry? Yeah, we, we need Amelia to join us as a guest. Yeah, when we get Amelia as the yeah, guest. Absolutely. Next I, just wanna, I just want to make a comment, quick comment, Ray. I forgot for the last 20 minutes that we're talking to a CMO. <laughs> I'm like, you are, you're, you, the way you articulate and simplify technology, um, it's, do, now, does that mean that CMOs need to be scientists, storytellers, technically proficient? I just want to say, extraordinary CMO. <laughs> That's actually where I was headed. I was like, I was, I was going to say, oh my, oh my God, I just learned neural networks in five minutes. This is pretty awesome. Anyway, thank you. CNN in five minutes. I mean, well, you know, when you work in AI, what happens is you're, you're often you're meeting with CIOs, right? I mean, you're meeting with very. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely. And do. you got to know your stuff. And it's not, you know, you can't talk fluff to them. And, you know, you're. No, no. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I hope CMOs are watching. If you're a CMO. <laughs> You better be able to go deep. Anyway, if you're a consumer yeah. CMO trying to do enterprise and faking it, you're going to fail. We're going to oh, tell you yeah. right now. There's yeah. no way you're going to succeed because in this world, like you, you got to know your tech. 
uh, oh, yeah. and make it work, right? That, that's one of the hardest things that people have to pull out that authenticity. And, and, and definitely we're getting that from you. That's awesome. Hey, you know, we are out of time. This is like, uh, I will get talk for a long time here. I mean, there, there's only one last thing. Back. I really wanted to have you back. And the main thing back. really is, is really, you know, we, we had to hear more about how you got here, right? I, I think that's, that's the important thing. We want to get the lessons learned. All maybe, just, maybe just one minute. Can you take us five years from now? Give us a little bit of, you know, what your, your predictions of AI in the next five years. And maybe we can do it like in a speed round, like AI yeah. and robotics. Where does that go? Okay, I'll give you uh, my top 10 or a top of my mind. It's going to become a political talking point, all right? Mm -hmm. President Trump, it was about globalization, immigration, right? Now it's going to become AI, about job loss and all of that, right? Um, it's, it's a huge thing. Uh, Goldman Sachs, I think, just came out with this thing that said self-driving vehicles is going to cost 25,000 truckers to lose their jobs each month. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a political talking point. Trucking is the largest industry in America. Logistics is going to become increasingly efficient. Right. Things like, you know, Kiva systems that Amazon acquired, that's robotics. So when you have you have a robot that basically is going to work 24 seven and they don't need lighting. Right. That's a big thing. Mainstream auto manufacturers are going to launch self-driving cars. That's happening. Right. DARPA is developing uh, robo warriors in plain sights. I mean, uh, that's, you know, they're developing with disaster relief right now. But, you know, the, the Atlas robot. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you can use other it uses. For, you can, potentially other uses. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Machine learning is going to aid knowledge workers. That's where it's right. headed. So rightfully concerned, you know, AI is going to put some people out of work, but really it also has the ability. Look at Gong, Chorus, Jog. You know, these are, by the way, AI companies that are recording calls by sales and customer service representatives. So there's a lot of that. Content, you know, publishing, we have some publishers here. Um, content is going to be created by AI. Guys, my prediction is just as a publisher and one of the largest publishing companies I came from, um, and having built it, majority of the fake news is going to be AI driven. So much so we're not even going to be able to figure out if it's fake or not fake. How do we operate as a society when fake news looks like real news because it's generated by AI? It's not even going to be that. It's even visuals. The visuals look fake. We can't even yeah. tell what's real or what's not. Yeah. What's superimposed. Right? We're here with Anurag Harsh, CMO at IPsoft. And you can follow him at A-N-U-R-A-G-H-A-R-S-H a digital, digital pioneer in media, and now a world expert on AI. So thank you very much. Thanks for being on the show. Of course, thank you. You are amazing. Thank you, sir. This is a, All right. Ray, my head's spinning. <laughs> that, was, that was amazing. That was amazing. Well, we, uh, we, we generally save the last spot for the smartest uh, thought leader uh, to come and wrap the show for us. And uh, it's our privilege to have Naska Zada, host and producer of Zada Show as our, as our last guest. Naska is the host and producer of Zada Show, which is a TV presentation featuring Middle East experts, as well as voices of ordinary people like Ray and I, affected by culture, religion, <laughs> political conflict in the region. The show is meant to include everyone of all religion uh, in honest, in-depth discussions um, where we're going to talk to us uh, about uh, different countries and techno emerging technology startups and really learn about the culture of the Middle East. I mean, I was born in Iran, so I welcome uh, this conversation. You can follow NASCA on Twitter at N-A-S-K-A-H-Z-A-D-A. Welcome, Naska, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much. Thank you for that great introduction. Appreciate that. 
Absolutely. Hey, happy Friday. And uh, you're calling in from happy where? Happy Friday. You made it. <laughs> yeah. Happy Friday. And you're calling in from where? So. Um, Washington, D.C. area. Awesome. Live from Washington, D.C. And I've bumped into you many, many times uh, where you've actually set me up for shows. And now we're going to turn the tables on you and ask you some questions. But more importantly, actually, we're trying to figure out what's going on, what's hot, what's happening on the Middle East. You've got this brand new show. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on and what inspired you to start the show. So um, I'm doing this show called Zada, which we, I'm covering Middle Eastern topics. Um, also, East Asian, including those countries, talk about religion, culture. Uh, you see so much um, fake news out there about, especially about the Middle East. Like the last segment you guys um, ended on fake news. Sometimes you don't know what's uh, the, the real news or what's the fake news and you just follow certain people on Twitter or social media and then you get confused. Hopefully on that, on Zada, we will be um, telling and checking some facts and bringing some experts and voices of ordinary people to tell us about the topics that we need to find solutions to. As we know, Middle East going through some rough times. Um, you, you're talking about Iran nuclear deal or Trump's policies in the Middle East or US foreign policy in the Middle East. And you have some other great news that we're going to talk about it today with you guys when it comes to um, technology and high tech in the Middle East that's completely underreported, I think. Right, absolutely. I, I just read an uh, uh, article from World Economic Forum uh, writing about uh, startups and technology uh, growth in the Middle East. And uh, the, the context of the story was that the success of startups in the Middle East can determine the whole region's success in the future. Uh, they referenced and highlighted one particular startup, uh, the ride-hailing uh, app, uh, Kareem, and that it has created over 500,000 jobs uh, in the Middle East. And it's not currently training female drivers in Saudi Arabia in terms of anticipating the adoption and growth um, and usage of the app. Can you talk to us about, you're a young entrepreneur in the Middle East. First, what's your perception of the U.S.? Uh, and, and, and two, what, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs in the Middle East in terms of the impact they can have building great companies and, 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 and really leveraging technology to not only grow themselves, but the communities that they serve? Um, well, before I go to talk about what I think, I, I want now talk about how you mentioned female entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurism in Middle East is increasing, which is not talked about the mainstream media because we're really interested in the wars and uh, you know how the wars funded other than technology and how those startups in the Middle East by young people. And I'll go to um, mentioning um, how female entrepreneurs on the rise in the Middle East that need to be really paid attention to. It's something positive, but something need to be reported. Having said that, um, according to The Economist, um, had a report recently that 25% of startups in the Middle East are females. That's oh, wow. compared to 70%. Wow. Yes, that's compared to 17% in the United States. Now that's according to the economist, which is something normally we talk about, um, I'm a female from Middle East and talk about 
you know, Middle Eastern women, we always see in the mainstream media, they're like abused and they don't have a lot of rights. And a lot of times people focus on Saudi Arabia, women don't know how to drive, but Saudi Arabia having a lot of reforms recently regarding women too. But mm -hmm. entrepreneurism and startups, especially females, when it comes to, it's very interesting, we both tech guys, when it comes to technology, females in the Middle East, they feel like they have no limit and there's no gender gap when it comes to that. They have um, this opportunity, they can start anything and then they can do it, which is absolutely something amazing and positive going yes. on when it comes to startups and, and that region. You know, and, you, and you spend a lot of time, I mean, talking through these issues, interviewing lots of folks. Um, what's happening in the tech scene in the Middle East? How's it evolving? What's changing? What have you seen over the last three to five years? I feel like it's evolving very nicely, but you, you talk about at least you have uh, UAE Gulf countries that absolutely into evolving and great companies going there and doing business in those countries. And then you have Israel completely having its own technology, a system that it's been working great. And then you have other regions that other countries in the region that they're not doing so great. It's unfortunate because of war, but um, like it's getting there. I was just reading a report on Egypt, how ever since um, last couple years, since 2016, um, a lot of startups in Egypt, you know, happening. And it's a, a lot of it when it comes to it's, it's high tech startups. And as a lot of them from young people, um, because majority of Middle Eastern population, they're under 30. So they're very young, they're very tech savvy, they're into fashion, technology, they're into fast cars, and they're even into not just that, we see more change. Um, for example, Saudi Arabia got into solar system and they wanna invest in that and not just technology and they bring in a job. And then you have UAE going, having so many companies that investing in new tech when it comes to, to the region. And also the third country is Egypt, surprisingly having um, you know, new IT and technology, um, starting you know, new companies to, to bring more jobs. And you have to know, Ray, um, that a lot of those companies when they start, and they're just, they're gonna bring new technologies in the region, which is, seems like the young population in that region, very interested in new technologies but they also bring jobs and they improve the economy, which it's much needed in that region. Yeah, I, what I've been reading about uh, trends in the Middle East, one, incumbent companies are more anxious than ever to partner with startups. Um, Amazon, a year ago, spent $580 million purchasing Scoop and uh, Souk, and, and Goldman Sachs said it was one of the most strategic, biggest ever M&A activity in, in the Middle East. Uh, it, so the e-commerce space is really super active in the Middle East. Also, some of these startups are influencing uh, government policymaking. So there's quite a bit of influence with some of these multi-million approaching, uh, you know, unicorn status uh, startups. So, so there's definitely an incredible amount of activity happening. And it's not just Dubai. A lot of times when I talk about technology in Middle East, people naturally gravitate to you know, like a $2 billion mall that Dubai is building that's gonna be the most technologically advanced mall in the world, as an example. But what advice do you have, again, to, to entrepreneurs 
who are looking to, you know, build great companies? Have you, is there a story you can share? Or maybe, maybe a different question. What's the misconception? What's the biggest misconception when it comes to how folks in America think about entrepreneurship and business in Middle East? You just taught us about how certainly the, the women entrepreneurs are crushing it. <laughs> Two times more so than U.S., which is amazing. That, I, I didn't know that stat. So are there other misconceptions that we have in terms of that great work that's happening in the Middle East? Well, I'll with some of them. Um, the ones like there's not a lot of female entrepreneurs, which is absolutely, they've been, you know, on the rise and they want to do start business. Um, so, I mean, in terms of advice, um, you know, I think there's, they're already doing it. Like the percentage speak itself, like females and younger people, they feel like the time, especially when it comes to technology to start up and emerge to the global market and have influence and not, and represent Middle East, not just as region it's been torn by wars and conflict, but also by, you know, they do this. And the fact is that they, they feel like they can do this. It's huge. My advice, just keep doing it. Like the percentage for females, it's great percentage of like companies starting in that region. Uh, it's been nice. And also uh, countries start to uh, start new laws or regulations or make it for younger and, and young entrepreneurs to start a business and and you know one of the recent ones um, was um, in Dubai they started doing um, bankruptcy policies and they also started doing you know issuing visas and changing that so more younger people from the region come to Dubai or start business around the region so this has all been happening it, I'm glad you mentioned I meant to mention Sook.com and Amazon it was the biggest deal last year it happened in the region and you have to know Sook.com was founded by a, a Syrian uh, refugee that which amazingly doing so well and Sook.com was doing very well even before Amazon.com um, so now they're like joining uh, the power so I mean who knows how many more jobs they will create they already created so many jobs that will advance uh, you know the economy and younger and will encourage like companies like that, not just this company, there's many, many more companies starting recently. They will encourage younger people or, you know, uh, entrepreneurs that, hey, this is successful. It's not just gonna end up uh, not being, you know, successful because of what they've been told, the stories from the social media and mainstream media that, uh, you know, you cannot have successful businesses in the Middle East except for Dubai or Israel right. or certain countries. So the stories, about that is changing, which is it's changing. Um, there's great, I wish we had more time to talk about. There's like a couple great companies starting in Egypt and Morocco, which lots of people, when you, when you mention Egypt, all they think about is war and Tahrir Square and people shouting and being on streets and not thinking about entrepreneur and starting businesses in that country. But, um, it, you know, Egyptians just taking, uh, you know, some kind of lead in, in this new high-tech technology and people you know majority people it's it's interesting coming from they're from the region originally but they studied elsewhere in the west especially and they go back to their home countries they're like we're gonna change this we're gonna have have high-tech 
companies, we're going to improve the economy and then we're going to prove everyone else hopefully wrong that their perception about the Middle East. That's very no. cool. If you want to learn more, Forbes just published 100 uh, most successful uh, startups in the Middle East. And there's just amazing range That's of countries. Capabilities. So it's a great, I encourage you to. Uh, it's uh, a great risk. And I think NASCO, what you're telling us here is that there, there's a public perception that we see because of the media and the news that we're in in the US. And there's the reality on the ground of these untold stories where entrepreneurship is happening, tech is thriving in different regions, the countries that we think we have a perception because our news cycle only shows one facet of the country. There's a lot of richness that's happening uh, that we may be missing. Um, when, you, when you tell those stories and when you talk to those individuals, um, what, what are their aspirations? What do people have in terms of getting their, you know, getting their startup out there? Do they have aspirations of a global ambition? Um, are they just looking at solving the particular problem that's at hand in their region? Um, or, or, or do they see you know, partnerships that occur uh, over time? Well, majority of the entrepreneurs, like, I don't know, if they, when they start a company, it was something that they were passionate about. Like, I hear stories of like, oh, I just wanted to solve a small problem in my community. Normally, I think, I don't know, you guys tell me because I'm not um, into uh, building companies or IT or entrepreneurism as much as you guys, but it started with small idea that oh. you want to improve community right and then it grows i think it was the same story about um uh cream.com it was it was to it started as of like i want to solve this problem in this community but then the demand for it was so huge then they had to come up with more solutions and make it more original and global eventually so you know you you, you see that a lot of like stories like i started like this i studied this and then i went back to homeland and I saw this problem and I wanted a solution awesome. for it. And then you go from there. And I think this is the best way to start anything because if you Absolutely. want to find solution for a community, then you know you 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 gather the community around that, and then you can have a, a better product in general. That's awesome. Yeah. So so how do ordinary people uh, pitch their stories to you? How does so, how, do, how how does somebody get on the Zana show? <laughs> how, how can people find so I, um, I mean, I've been, I've been in media for the last 10, 12 years that doing interviews and experts and um, the, I, I was, I was, I, you know, people contact me. They're like, Hey, do you want to interview me? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't have a show. And that's how it started, which was very interesting. <laughs> I have a lot, I know lots of experts around DC and globally. And then when I talk to them and then they're like, oh, you should have a show. They gave me the idea. They're like, you should interview me. And I'm like, I don't have any show. Okay. So I, I you know, and then because I'm personally so focused on, on solutions and I feel like really what we do in general, the mainstream media, like I said, I don't want to say awful and evil or anything like that. I mean, they're, they're doing fightings and different problems they have to solve when they report. But I feel like really it's not genuine when it comes to reporting on the Middle East. It's like not everybody's voices included as normally bias depends which station, you know, reporting on which story of it's Israel or Iran nuclear deal. The politics of it, even the major mainstream medias, they get so caught up in that that they don't actually give voice to those people who need to be heard in the region. And, and hopefully Zada gonna do that and it's gonna be like an honest discussion that would bring everybody together, but 
that's for finding solutions. I love that. We need more Zala shows. So yes, yeah. thank you so much for doing that. <laughs> this is awesome. We are live here with Naska Zada. You can follow her on N-A-S-K-A-H-Z-A-D-A -A -A, uh, here on Disrupt TV show, giving us some insights on tech in the Middle East, the culture, and what's next. And you want to catch her show as she ramps up, uh, the Zada show. So thanks a lot for being on Disrupt TV live from DC and uh, happy Friday. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Wow. That was what a wonderful mix of technology, culture, humanity. And yeah, we do need people to bridge the gap in terms of understanding that, you know, it's a big world we live in. And there's lots of opportunity for great people doing great work everywhere. So, yeah. and, and I think what we've learned over the years, Vala, is that there's good people everywhere. I mean, the countries, the religions, the genders, I mean, that has nothing to do with it. The good people are good people. And, and it's, you know, how, how their physical presence manifests, that's very, very different uh, than, than what's out here in the heart. Uh, and I think that's very important. So, but we are on episode 119. This is, it makes me laugh every time we're in these three digit numbers. I'm like, oh my God, how do we get here? Um, we have some great folks next week. Um, really talking about some other interesting things, um, a little bit on uh, a book, a writer, an author, and some things on healthcare. Who are next week's guests on episode 119? 119. We're getting to that 300 magic number of guests. Uh, so we have a healthcare theme next next week, and we have Rabri Ramam Batu, author of Reverse Innovation. We have Anai Santiago, uh, Chief Information Security Officer at Christiana Health. And we have one of the top influencers in healthcare, contributor to Forbes and many other publications, John Nosta, president and founder of Nosta Labs. So it's gonna be packed around healthcare innovation, trends, customer experience, and uh, you know, future of medicine. So definitely wanna tune in uh, next week if you're interested in healthcare and innovation as a whole. And innovation as a whole. So we want you to do this. You don't have DVRs today yet because we're not on a cable TV show. But if you can, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, every week, every week of the year, block it as we actually uh, light up Disrupt TV show everywhere. And more importantly, you can catch us on SoundCloud. All you have to do is search up Disrupt TV show. And I believe we have uh, streaming on Apple somewhere on iTunes. So you can catch mm -hmm. us there. So check out the shows, check out the past shows, tell us what you think, right? As we get into the fall season, let us know, you know who we should be inviting. And there's going to be some other fun events. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll hit, save the date December 10th. We're going to be doing something very special. That's all I can say for now. Anything else on your end, Vala, before we sh close out? No, I'm heading to San Francisco next week, uh, meeting several clients, looking forward to next week's show. And uh, tell us who you want on the show. We're starting to get feedback on social in terms of guests we should be bringing and we're very receptive to it. As, and it could be ordinary people doing extraordinary work. It doesn't have to be big titles and big companies. So let us know, uh, RWANG0 and Bala Afro on Twitter or Disrupt TV Show. And you tell us who you want and we'll do our best to get them on the show. So if it's Friday. It's Disrupt TV Show. <laughs> Happy Friday, everyone. See you guys, bye-bye. All right, take care.